Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. AD 1020, there was a Danish king who ruled over England, and eventually this monarch grew weary of his counselor's flattery because they spoke endlessly about his greatness and invincibility. So he ordered his royal throne to be set down on the seashore, from which he commanded the sea to retreat at the sound of his voice. But no matter how forcefully he ordered the tides to restrain themselves, his order was unsurprisingly not obeyed. Soon the waves lapped up around his chair, slowly, hour by hour, burying it into the sand. At that moment, he never wore his crown again, but hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ instead. Well, the message tonight that I have for you is very simply this, that uh, earthly authority is never supreme. Earthly authority is never, ever supreme because there is always a higher throne uh, to which we cry out. And uh, I'm, I'm speaking about politics tonight. How fun. Yes, but I thought it was timely being that it's July 4th, but we're, we're dealing with the subject this summer of the pandemic of the heart, and I think that our individual hearts and our national heart has been cloven in two by very uh, dicey and complicated and jagged political realities. And I think we need to get to the soul of this thing if we're ever to be helped. And so I'm going to speak, yes, tepidly, but hopefully with some courage about the subject uh, that is the subject of our relationship as Christians to our nation. Because Paul wrote about this. I mean, these issues are not just our issues. You know, they were issues uh, in all times and places. And in 1 Timothy 2, in his later years, Paul is addressing the subject briefly, but uh, with some great effect. And he's, uh, he's speaking, if I can put my own, uh, my own framing on it, he's speaking about uh, our method, our monarchs, and our mediator. Our method, our monarchs, and our mediator as they relate uh, to the whole uh, conception of Christian engagement within national reality. So let me begin with our method, our method in relating to our nation. This is what it says in verse 1. I encourage you to please follow along with me. First of all, then... So we know right from the start, he's, a, he's uh, addressing something initially with, which has some force just because of its placement. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, we'll stop uh, right there. Well, in uh, Paul's uh, day, various groups of extremely devout uh, Jews had a variety of ways that they sought to interact with the national or political life of their country. And they were very sharply divided about those methods. Uh, The Sadducees really believed that it's better uh, to get along in order to go along, or to go along and get along, or whatever that cliched phrase is. Um, But they would cozy up with the culture and essentially say to the Romans, you know, we really do like you a lot. And insofar as we can replicate any of your practices, uh, we will, because we want you to be comfortable and we want to be comfortable. 
So it was sort of a, an acquiescence to uh, cultural drives and norms. They were sort of like the mainline Protestants of ancient Judaism. And then you had the Essenes. The Essenes believed in a retreatist model. They said the city is depraved. Everybody we know is depraved. So let's leave everything behind and hide out in caves and write things, which they did. And that's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, because of the Essenes, right? They're sort of like the ancient Mennonites, right? They decided to get out of town. Uh, and then you have the Zealots. The Zealots thought, yes, everything is corrupt, but if we kill enough people, uh, <laughs> things will be less corrupt. And so the, the Zealots, uh, the Zealots uh, believed that, uh, that, that violence in the name of God could affect great moral and cultural change for the better. Uh, and, uh, and they were like the sort of armed Jesuits of that. I'm just kidding. I don't know what to liken them to right now, but, but it was, it was rough. It was rough. Um, but there were a variety of alternatives about how you were to deal with a culture that you believed was a threat to you. Well, Paul is suggesting something very different. He says, pray for them. You pray. That's how you deal with it. You pray. You get spiritual. You don't get carnal. You actually have to deal with God. If you want things to get better around you, you have to go to the source. You have to go to the one who can make things better. But you don't start with you, and you don't start with your anger, and you don't start with your energy, and you don't start with your causes, and you don't start with what you think is just, because it probably isn't. You have to go to God first. And so he says you have to pray. That is our method. Pray. And notice these are positive prayers, not negative prayers. I make the qualification, because in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of impressions prayers that you can pray against your enemies. Do you know what I mean? Read some of the Psalms sometime and you'll just think, oh my gosh, I mean, who wrote this? Um, but, uh, but people with a bit of a violent edge, right? Well, uh, the, the point is that Paul is saying here, I want you to pay, pa- pray positive things about these people. I want you to pray well-being uh, um, toward these people. And, and so we have words like supplication and intercession, which mean sort of the same thing. In other words, ask for people's needs to be met. Ask that uh, the country and the leadership um, of this country, that their needs would be met. And then he mentions Thanksgiving. When something good happens in your country because of your leaders, thank God for it. So our chief method of dealing with nations is prayer. Not revolt, not retreat, not critique, but prayer. Now, this method of prayer is a very powerful, and I also want to say it's sort of a subtly subversive thing. Because if you pray regarding your leaders, you are acknowledging by doing that very thing that those leaders are not your ultimate leaders. That there is a higher throne, there is a higher power, uh, there is someone above your government. So we appeal to something, or rather someone, superior to judges, to presidents, to kings, to empires, who neither rises nor falls, according to news cycles or nations. Now, King David himself realized this. I mean, he was at the top of the pyramid, humanly speaking. And yet he writes in Psalm 61, in his mid-career, lead me to the rock, That is, you know it, that is higher than I, meaning I'm not the one on the top of Everest. Someone else is higher than me. Well, that's our method is prayer, that we go to God when we deal with something, some social problem, some cultural problem, some national problem, we have to go to God. Because prayer in that place will save us from two diseases that are killing our country right now. Here they are, cynicism and idealism. 
it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or conservative. You could be a liberal and be cynical or ideal, and you could be conservative and be cynical or ideal. It's just a disease that just gets everybody eventually, or gets many, many people. Um, and it's very easy to fall into those two errors. But prayer saves us from cynicism because it requires us to offer thanks for our leaders, which is the opposite of cynicism. You can't be cynical and thankful at the same time. But prayer also saves us from idealism, because when we intercede for our leaders, we are asking God to fix what is wrong, which is a tacit acknowledgement that something is wrong and needs to be fixed. And so you can't be an idealist and pray that way. And so this is a challenging word for me, I have to tell you. Uh, Do we pray for our leaders, or are we just cynical critics? It's much easier to do that, by the way. it, It excites the flesh. It makes us feel superior, like we're outside the system. And it's only morons who are running the system. And I have to say, I have to sort of publicly repent, not sort of, I have to publicly repent in all of you that whenever I've spoken about politicians from this pulpit, I've done so, I believe, with 100% negativity. I don't believe there's been any exception to that at all at any times or places. And there's, uh, and there's something sort of humorous about that in me that I want to sort of, uh, I'm so disappointed with the system that I want to suggest to you that I see through it and I'm above it, but that's in a way ridiculous and, and actually not biblical because there are some good things that occur and I, I tend not to notice those things. And so I just want to put that out there for what it's worth. Um, but maybe you're with me. I mean, you understand at least where I'm coming from here. Uh, are you feeling challenged by this whole notion too, to offer thanks, to offer thanks for your leaders? Uh, and to pray, to intercede for them rather than just offering scouring critiques. That's why, by the way, I love within the Anglican liturgy that regardless of who is the president, regardless of who the judges are, regardless of who serves in Congress, we pray for them. It doesn't matter if they're your uh, man or woman or they're not. We still pray for them every week because Scripture commands us to do so. And that ought to be a challenging rebuke in a way as we pray week after week for these people. So that's our method. That's our method. We don't often follow it, but we ought to. I think we would find ourselves less haunted, less mentally haunted uh, by these political specters if we actually engaged with God first. So that's point one, our method. Point two, our monarchs, our monarchs. This is what it says in verse two. So he wants you to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in, in every way. Now, he notice he begins earlier by saying, pray for everybody, regardless of their rank, because everybody needs your prayers. But then he zeroes in on leaders, on kings and people with high positions, because uh, Paul understands right, that whoever is at the helm has a great effect. Whoever's the captain can steer the ship. And so he wants you to pray for those culture shapers, those culture makers, so that not everybody has to suffer, right, in the wake of their effect. So he wants you to pray for these people who can command nations and states. Well, I think that that's a a rather strange and ironic and sweet and wonderful exhortation from Paul, given how Paul was treated by the state, his own, and the broader empire. I mean, he had some tough run-ins, as you may recall from the book of Acts and from his epistles. After all, Paul was brutalized, terrorized, and imprisoned by the state. He's writing this letter from a prison. I mean, it's not going well, generally speaking, right? And and what does Paul say out of that pain? Pray for these people and give thanks for them. I mean, that's quite something. When it's all the more shocking because of who the king is. Now, most likely, most likely, we don't know the dates of all these letters, but most likely the king that Paul is referencing here is who? Nero. Nero. You know, 
complicated. A man, I mean, and he needed an analyst. He needed an analyst and a good priest so badly. But um, he was a brutal, murderous thug who also believed he was a divine being and was treated as such, prayed to. Incense was offered to his name. And so Paul says, pray for that person. Pray for Nero. Pray for the court of Nero. Now, why pray for these government officials? Well, Paul has a goal in mind. He has a a hoped-for answer to these prayers. And it's again in verse 2. He says, pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that, there's the that there, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, a godly life, one that is dignified in every way. So pray for them. Pray for the structure, the framing, the political framing of our corporate life so that we can do what we have to do locally. There's a missional edge to that, so the church can carry on with its business without interruption, right? It, 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 it's Tevia, right? Uh, Lord, keep the czar far away from here, but sort of, right? Sort of. <clears throat> but pray that the system works well so that we can carry on with our business and also lead a quiet life and not have endless, endless abusive interruptions uh, in our day-to-day experience. Well, um, a peaceful and quiet life is the result of good governance. It's the result of good governance. Good governance prevents, by necessity and by design, carnage and chaos. Romans 13 spells this out in, uh, in very graphic detail. Romans 13 is Paul's um, little excursus about how you're to think about the government. And he, he calls rulers in that passage ministers of God. Now, he means that in a generalized sense, but ministers of God, that they're used by God. And used by God for what? Well, he says in Romans 13, these words, rulers are not a terror to a good conscience or a good conduct, but to bad. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So he's saying that, uh, that rulers exist, rulers exist to enforce good order that is implicit in creation, but is often disobeyed because of the fall. So rulers are to bear the sword or punishment to keep people in line. Luther, by the way, called this the first use of the law. He said the law cannot change the heart, and he's right. What the law can do is scare you to death so you obey it, so that you are obedient just out of fear. By the way, that's horribly useful, like horribly useful. It's very useful, very useful. That's why we have speed limits, right? Because we, while all of you like to drive like I drive, we ought not to um, because we could really injure people, right? And so um, that's why the police on Route 80 exist to keep me alive. But it, it enforces the law through fear. Well, the government is meant to enforce that good order. Well, bad government does the opposite. It breaks down good order and creates evil and chaos and blood that runs through the streets. And we have lots of historical examples to back that up. That's what happens when people are poorly governed. Um, And so our prayers for monarchs are that they would reign rightly, that they would restrain evil and permit the flourishing of virtue. Whenever we use Cranmer's prayers in our Eucharistic services, uh, Cranmer wants us to pray uh, that our leaders would punish wickedness and vice and permit true religion and virtue. But that the government would restrain the darkest elements of society out of uh, their capacity to carry the sword. Uh, And so we pray for our monarchs that they would do just that, that they would rule fairly, justly, and that they would punish wickedness and vice. That's something about our method, our monarchs, and now lastly, our mediator. 
I'm going to skip a bit to verse 5 because there's just too much to cover. Verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. A mediator. So we have a person who's a mediator. Now, ancient men and women very often believed their kings, like Nero, were mediators of the gods. They were the bridge. If you wanted to know who the bridge was, look for the man with the leafy crown, because he was your conduit. He was your portal. He was the one who connected heaven and earth. Uh, he was your mediating presence. Uh, and, and in fact, there's a very uh, detailed and beautiful woodcut of a Chinese emperor whose head was crowned with a, with a hundred crowns, very artistically and, uh, and with great detail cut into the wood. And those crowns reach all the way to the heavens. What's the, what's the idea that's being communicated? This emperor is your conduit. This emperor is your bridge from earth to heaven. Uh, well, what's fascinating about Judaism is, uh, well, many things are fascinating about it, but especially in the, regarding this particular subject, is they never crowned their kings with many crowns. They never believed that their kings were the embodiment of God. But more to the point, most of the Old Testament is a long-lasting critique of the monarchy. But here, what's interesting is that Paul names a mediator, and he gives that mediator a title. He calls him Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. Now, you may know this, but it bears repeating. That's a royal title. Christ is a royal title. It's not a last name. It is a political term that means anointed one or anointed king. So he is saying that this is the one. This is your mediator, Christ Jesus. There is only one, and it's not the emperor, and it's not anybody who came before him. It is only this, this Jesus figure. And then he says something radical about this Jesus figure who gave himself as a ransom for all. In other words, our bridge, our conduit, the one who bears many crowns is the slaughtered peasant whose head was wrapped in thorns. The one who came in bruises and in weakness and in slaughter is the highest, mightiest authority. The one who paid your debt is your only mediator. He is the one that binds earth to heaven and you to God, and there is no other. Now, in previous election cycles, and this has happened perhaps several times, I, I've, I've sometimes, unfortunately, heard Christians speak of po various political options uh, in, in such a way to cause me to have hives. And, and they say, we need to vote for God's anointed choice. They use that phrase, anointed. Um, don't do that. Never, ever, ever, ever do that, um, because it's blasphemous. You're not voting for any anointed one. The definitive and final anointed one is Jesus Christ, and he has no rivals. He is your only mediator, the only one, the only prince from heaven who connects the realms. To call any of our current leaders anointed is dangerous language, for we have one and only one. So that's something about the method, the monarchs, and our mediator. But I want to close now with a word about patriotism, about heavenly patriotism and earthly patriotism, and in that order. <clears throat> beginning with heavenly patriotism. You know, may know that patria, which is at the etymological root of the word patriotism, means father. And it is certainly true uh, in a Christian construct that we are, first and foremost, monarchists of the eternal father. We are subjects to an imperial Christ and patriots of, first and foremost, the kingdom of God. 
And so, while we pray for the state and those who govern it, we do not worship our state nor its leaders. And I don't just mean that we don't worship it in the sense of we sing hymns to America only and somehow adore a map with a picture of the United States on it. I don't mean that. We also don't expect divine qualities from an earthly nation. We don't have eschatological assumptions about an earthly country. Nor do we think that God has a special relationship or covenant with any particular nation, including our own. That's just not biblical. The new covenant of Jesus' blood is an internationalist covenant that makes us all the citizens of heaven. But citizens of heaven, that is our chiefest belonging and identity and loyalty, is to that kingdom that Jesus embodied and bled for. Now, this will always lead to certain tensions with, within ourselves and within and between ourselves and our temporal kingdoms, but the Bible does suggest we ought to have a priority. I know this is obvious, but it's sort of not obvious, at least emotionally sometimes. Uh, The priority is evidenced in the book of Acts when the disciples run into trouble with their government, which was the Sanhedrin. It was a religio-political government, but it was a government. that uh, They were very unhappy that the disciples were proclaiming the resurrection. They told them to shut up. And the disciples with candor and grace, said, we can't. Because if it comes down to it, between obeying you or obeying Christ, well, we have a priority. Normally we would obey you, but we can't this time. We have to obey Christ because Christ's authority is more important than yours. Um, But I want to note that even when we have to make that decision, even when we have to make a call for Christ over local or, or national governments, Uh, In our defiance, our weapon still must be prayer, integrity, and love, not violence and cynicism. It's not just our words, but our manner that matters. And may we reflect the gospel in those moments when it's most difficult to. So that's something about heavenly patriotism, which is our chiefest goal. And then something about earthly patriotism. And... uh, I I say this with great heart, that the sovereign of heaven has sovereignly placed us within a given nation. And we are, as exiles here, to work for the good of that particular nation. And what's more, it is precisely because our chiefest loyalty is not directed toward a state, but toward Christ, that we can actually become useful servants within our earthly nation, without becoming idolatrous, cynical, or idealistic. So Paul says at the beginning of this (coughs) passage to offer thanks as well as intercession. Well, so here's my best stab at it. <clears throat> Just a paragraph, so bear with me. Um, as Christians who reside in the United States, we have much, much to be thankful for, and we ought not to be cynical about it. Uh, that's very in vogue right now, to be sort of cynical and hate America. and sort of in, and it's easy, and it's cheap. Um, But before we go there, just for a moment, we do have a country that has safeguarded our individual liberties of conscience, thought, speech, religion, association, the press, and voting, to name a few things. And we can be grateful for the constitutional framework which provides us the enduring gift of individual uh, and national self-correction so that when we go off the rails, we can be brought back through certain founding documents that seem to have enduring power. We have in this country a great deal of Uh, economic and social mobility. We can have peaceful assemblies like this one and the opportunity to dialogue and disagree about massive ideas without threat. These liberties were hard won and they are the beautiful results of thousands of years of earnest and thoughtful consideration. And so we ought to be thankful for those things. Um, 
And we intercede, too, because we live within a devastated world, and so it's not a surprise that our own nation bears the effects of that fallen devastation. As patriots of the kingdom of God, we must, without fear, look upon the misdeeds of our nation with clarity, including the foul treatment of Native Americans or the horrors of slavery with its racist underpinnings that afflict us to this day. We mourn some of the reasoning for certain wars that have at times resulted in needless deaths. We recall policies which have harmed the environment, sometimes beyond repair, and other policies that have sanctioned abortion for any and all reasons, 61 million dead and counting, friends. That is 10 times more than the Holocaust killed um, in, the, in terms of the Jewish community. And we grieve, I grieve personally, the very in vogue denial of the reality of uh, gender as governments permit gender reassignment for children via hormone treatments it's a very brutal thing that we're doing to our children. And this is my point. Our heavenly patriotism gives us a moral vision in the present, a compass for engaging with our earthly patriotism. My, my simple prayer, therefore, from these reflections is this. Lord, secure us where we are right and cure us where we are diseased. But it's both. Loving the kingdom of God and loving a country. I think there is, of course, room for charitable disagreement, not regarding core principles. I think Christians need to be aligned with those, but on implementation of those principles. For example, both the Old Testament and New Testament routinely speak about caring for the poor. Some people believe that ought to happen through individual charity. Other people believe that that ought to happen through some sort of centralized mechanism. Uh, you may remember that uh, Billy Graham and John Stott had a fascinating conversation about this. Billy Graham, of course, the American Republican. John Stott, the British Anglican evangelical who was also a member of the Labor Party in England, disagreed about that particular matter and had a little bit of a row about it. Nevertheless, they regarded that their core principles in terms of helping the poor were more important than their particular strategies regarding helping the poor. They both cared about the poor, and that was the point. Now, we can debate about that, have lots of endless conversations about it, but all I'm saying is that they agreed on the core matter at hand. So this is my point in closing. We first and foremost belong to and swear allegiance to the kingdom of God and the Christ emperor who rules it. Only then, after we've done that and saturated ourselves in that kingdom, can we be dutiful and effective subjects of our nation and supporters of its best designs. All of our thrones, friends, all of them, that is, the thrones of our rulers and even the pretend ones that we sit upon. All of our thrones eventually sink into the sand. But Jesus the Christ reigns beyond the oceans and above our horizons, and his throne is permanently secure. Amen. Amen.